1: Again, my beautiful screamers and welcome to another season and another episode of Scream Queens, the podcast where horror gets gay. This is episode 338 and tonight I'm taking you to London for a tale of ambition, obsession, time travel, music, madness, murder, And Mod Mini Dresses. That's right, we're talking about Edgar Wright's film, Last Night in Soho. And in order to do that, I'm going to be joined by a very special guest, filmmaker, podcaster, and notorious homosexual, Michael Verratti. But before we do any of that, please allow me to reintroduce myself. Hello, my name is Patrick Walsh, and ever since 2010, I've been your guide to the weird and wonderful world of horror movies. But you are gonna have to see them through my very gay little eyes. Har 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 har. Before we kick things off, I just want to say that at its core, Last Night in Soho is a murder mystery. Therefore, it is impossible for Michael and I to have any sort of proper discussion about the movie without spoiling it. So if you have not yet seen Last Night in Soho, I recommend stopping right now, rent it, buy it, do whatever you need to do, get your hands on a copy of this movie because I think it's fabulous and I think it's worth a buy. I'm going to risk putting that out there. Like I said, it's impossible to get into the nitty gritty and the core of this movie without discussing its secrets. And I don't want you to come crying to me. Later on, I've warned you. And if you are indeed dead set at listening to this episode without watching the movie, we do pause and give you ten seconds to get out. We will give you an escape hatch to let you know that if you go beyond this point, the murderer will be revealed. So you've been warned. Also, I want to give a very big thank you to Bill Van Ryn from Groovy Doom, without whom this episode would not be possible. Because I realized that music is such a core part of this film, pop music from the mid 1960s, that It's always playing in the background of the movie, so it was very difficult to pull sound clips from the film without music playing behind it. That would trigger the iTunes bots that would pull the episode. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to get sued. But Bill Van Ryn found a way to work around that without me being slapped in the face with a lawsuit, because that's not what I'm in the mood to get slapped in the face with today. I think that's all I've got for you right now. So why don't we all just get comfy while I play the trailer for Last Night in Soho?
3: Last night I had a dream. There was a girl. I got this kind of gift. And you are? Sandy. I can see people, places.
4: So I'll see you again.
3: I know where to find me. But they're not just dreams. They really happened.
5: What
3: did you see, A girl murdered.
5: witnessed the murder last night and you believe this was a vision.
4: Jack, I don't want to do this. You think you can just walk away? Do you
3: believe in ghosts? Save yourself!
1: So to kick off yet another season of Scream Queens I figure it's a very special episode I need a very special guest He is a first-timer When it comes to filmmaking, he's a man of many hats He is a screenwriter, he's an actor, he's a director, he's a producer He's a floor watch, he's a dessert topic But most of all, he's fabulous Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and my GNCs, wherever you may be Please
0: welcome to Scream Queens for the very first time
2: So excited to be here! I can't even tell you.
1: I am so excited
2: to have you. So long overdue. Yeah, you know, I I have long admired. Yeah, it. it what is it? Uh, longtime listener, first time caller. I have long admired the work you do, Patrick. I'm so excited to be here and get to talk to you about this wild movie we're about to dig
1: into, but also just to spend some time. Yes, 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 yes. Because I have to tell you, I I have a. All right, since you've worked with Bart, I can say that I have a similar. Feeling that I had about Bart initially. You scare me. You intimidate me. <laughs> like he wears so many hats. <laughs> he knows so much about everything. You 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 threaten me. But here we are. <laughs> it's so funny uh, in his, in a sexy way though. Oh uh, well, I'll take uh,
2: yeah. sexy but threatening. You know, it's probably one of the few times I get to to use that descriptor. No, I just had dinner with Bart uh, a couple weeks ago. Alan Ro was visiting Los Angeles, and we we old uh, cronies of Tales of we haven't had an opportunity to get together in a while, so we all went to a Polynesian restaurant, had a tiki drink,
1: caught up, and it was it was magical. Perfect. Okay, since you mentioned Tales of Poe, Michael Varady, I mentioned all the hats you wear. Could you please be more specific? If you don't know, if the people out there don't know who you are, please, please. Oh, um, give them! Get I don't
2: know, I'm, I'm I'm like words just stopped happening. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, it is true. I am a screenwriter and a filmmaker, and I produce uh, Tales of Poe, since we alluded to, was a horror anthology film where we did modern day retellings of Edgar Allan Poe stories, uh, and I wrote the third story in the anthology, Dreams, which was kind of a very surrealistic uh, silent film, uh, and I worked with the fabulous Bart Master Nardi and Alan Roe Kelly on that movie. I have since. Stepped into the world of television. I write a lot of TV movies, TV Christmas movies, TV thrillers. And I uh, have never left my queer horror roots, though, because I utilize... Uh, the money and resources I make from television to turn around and make weirdo, queer-do films. Uh, I've made many, many queer horror shorts, including The Office is Mine, which played at a bunch of festivals. And you can watch it, I think, on Deku right now. Uh, I'm in the process of making a queer horror feature. I've hosted many queer horror podcasts. I mean, I feel like I'm doing a very, very light summary of my career. But as you mentioned, it is early,
1: so. <laughs> and it's a lot of hats. It's a lot of hats. Oh, wigs, if you prefer.
0: Yes. Wear a lot of wigs. I love a good sure. wig.
1: Who doesn't? Yes. who doesn't? The movie that we are here to talk about today is Edgar Wright's Love Letter slash Nightmare to London and the Mid-60s, Last Night in Soho. What a film. What a film. Yeah. The gatekeepers are out on this one. The horror gatekeepers. It's not really horror. I'm like, it's not, but it, it's there. Well, you
2: know what's interesting about it is... I think that you, I'm glad that actually brought up Tales of Poe because I rarely get a chance to talk about it in interviews because we're now almost a decade past. But when we did the dream segment, the one that I mentioned that I wrote, we were very inspired by the idea of surrealism and dream logic. And uh, it feels kind of apt to start the conversation with that portion of my career and then dig into this movie because it's not really horror in the traditional set up a scare and knock him down kind of sense. This is like the long, dark tea time of the soul kind of horror where it, it's, it's all about the internal terror. I mean, yeah, there is an external threat in the movie, of course, but Edgar Wright, especially if you know him for Scott Pilgrim or the, the uh, Cornetto trilogy, this is a very different beast from the kind of movies that we've seen from him before. You see the De Palma kind of influence, you see the Argento influence, but he, he pulls from them less the the physical menace and more the mental menace, and I think that's what really propels this movie
1: forward. Concur, concur. Since you brought up Tales of Poe, I'm going to tell you the same thing I told Bart Masternardi. Okay, Dreams was a beautiful segment. When I saw it at the premiere in New York, I was flabbergasted, and I told Bart to end your movie with that was ballsy. You know, to go from these kind of campy, fun, typical gory horror things to this poetic eloquent silent film that just ends on such a downer and please Michael Verardi, never tell me what your script was. I don't want to know what story you had in mind because I've made up one in my head and it works as an emotional thing. I lost my sister to cancer. And when I saw it the uh, last time I watched the movie, I said, this really, that whole segment resonated differently in a beautiful way. So never tell me.
2: And I won't, all I will say is this, that it, uh, that, is a piece because dreams mean different things to different, different people. That's what I wanted. So I'm so happy to hear that that is uh, the response. Like I have never, never felt the need to explain that segment or how I wrote it because I've had people explain things to me. And I feel like if that is, is the dream that they walked away with, then that's what it's about.
1: Okay. And it's an excellent segue because this movie is like this neon drip dream. That goes bad. (laughs) Yes. But it also has some fabulous uh, hair and clothes. Oh, good Lord. Yes, (laughs) yes. And it's stellar performances too. Visually stunning, top to bottom. Even if you look at Edgar Wright's work, maybe not so much Baby Driver, but if you look at even going all the way back to space, he loves to mix up his genres. Yeah. a space, is, a space is a sitcom, yet it's got sci-fi elements, it's got horror elements, it's got fantasy elements. They're all jumbled up together, and that's what this movie is, too. And it's not Shaun of the Dead, and people, I think, were expecting that. No, I think, I think you're right. And what I really thought was interesting
2: is that, yes, there are romantic elements of other Edgar Wright movies. I mean, really, Scott Pilgrim is all about one boy trying to fight for the love of a girl, whether he's just or not. But it's all through that weird video game fantasy lens. But this is the first time I really, really think that we get a psychosexual version of Edgar Wright. And uh, I love that in some ways, the psychosexual that he chooses to explore, whether overt or subtextual, is kind of
1: queer. It's two women knowing each other intimately, ultimately. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Michael, we've skipped ahead a little bit. We've forgotten a basic Scream Queen tradition. I'm all for the summer and I forget my own rules. Michael, since you are my guest, I need you deep down inside. That didn't come out right. I need (laughs) you. Take two. I need you to give me a nice, tight 30-second back-of-the-DVD plot summary. Imagine I'm a producer in an elevator. You've got 30 seconds to sell it to me. The clock says now!
2: So a fashion student goes to London, and she moves into a Soho apartment, wherein she starts having visions of a girl from the 1960s who she at first is attracted to, but later discovers that that girl had dark, mysterious, killer secrets. Nicely done. Thank you. Sold. (laughs) Sold.
1: It's got the sci-fi time travel element. It's got the girl making it in the big city movie. It's got mystery. It's got ghosts. It's got horror to it. It's got a little bit of, it's got a love story sort of. Yeah. it's
2: Well, it's interesting. You know, when David Lynch would do press, his like longstanding thing was he would never explain his movies. So when people would ask him to give a synopsis, he would always say, it's about a girl in trouble. And uh, what I love is that it's always vague, but it's also always true. And technically last night in Soho is about a girl in trouble.
1: This was the movie that got me to come back to the theaters for COVID. I'm glad I got to see it on the big screen because it is visually stunning. And what I realized this time around is that it's a spectacle. Yeah. That doesn't rely on its own special effects. The, the major special effects are so blended into the scenery that you almost don't notice them and you get used to them really quickly. Like this magic happening all the time on screen. And a lot of times you just you get so accustomed to it. For example, you could say that the main source of magic in this movie would be these time traveling dream hallucination things, whatever you want to call them. But for me, what makes this particular time traveling dream hallucination different from any other time traveling dream hallucination is this connection that Ellie has with this dream girl, Sandy. Ellie is observing Sandy's night at the nightclub, except she's not exactly observing. She's also participating. And sometimes she is Sandy. Like she's sometimes embodying Sandy. And they'll do this in a number of different ways. For instance, like it won't be the main focus, but they'll pass a mirror and you'll see either Ellie or Sandy in the mirror. Ellie and Sandy become interchangeable, very Very quickly, And in these scenes, they're able to swap out actresses in the middle of a scene, like in one course of discussion, you become so accustomed to it that your brain doesn't even notice. And that's the kind of magic I'm talking about. The magic that you barely notice. The spectacle is the location. Yeah. And I think the recreation
2: uh, of, of 1960s London, specifically Soho, is just so staggering when we get the first dream sequence and she walks out onto the street. That's it's beautiful. That's cinema. It's breathtaking moment.
1: Yes, yes, wonderful, spectacular moment that I just assumed was CGI, and I only learned today, was not. They recreated all of 1960s London, and that must have been a massive, massive undertaking.
2: Well, it was a $43 million budget, and I kind of get a sense of where it went. Um, But it is interesting because, you're right, there's so many things that we now, as genre fans, or just regular film goers in a post-Marvel universe, expect so much to be digitally constructed, that I think that in some ways, when things are done practically, we almost take it for granted because we're not thinking about it. But Mm. The recreation of '60s Soho, and then the whole dance sequence with both of them—that's almost entirely shot practically as well. And stunning, it's yeah. stunning. I mean, and you know that they had to have spent weeks and weeks rehearsing that to make that work.
1: Oh yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I actually rewound that three times on this last watch. I'm like, that is so damn good that the, and you don't even notice it. Like, there's so many times where, okay, <sighs> let's backtrack a bit. I love a backtrack. What I think is fun too is that even if nothing supernatural or fantasy or sci-fi or everyone to describe what happens to Ellie during the course of this movie, even if none of that happened, I was already on board because I found her whole girl making it in the big city at fashion school already fascinating. Yeah. Thomas and Mackenzie, what what a find! Right,
2: I, you know I don't know as much about her as maybe Anya Taylor Joy in terms of just being aware of the career trajectory, but I know Thomas and Mackenzie has been around, and uh, but I think you're right. This is this is such a standout performance because this is an opportunity for her to take the stage. And we see, even though she stays true to Ellie, the entire movie, the kind of trajectory from like mousy girl who makes her own outfit, who comes to the big city is sort of bullied by the Regina George of the fashion school. And then, you know, moves into Diana Riggs apartment and has her own sort of weird evolution to like kind of bleach blonde goth chick by the end of the film is, is she handles it all with aplomb. And I really think that her performance, if, if we didn't have her, this movie wouldn't work.
1: She's literally in every scene. Yeah. So everything hinged on this girl who was not a name to sell the movie with. And I think she's fantastic. And it's interesting because Anya Taylor
2: Joy, I I read, was Edgar Wright's first choice to play Ellie. He had cast her as Ellie. And then I think he had watched her in some other films where she played similarly, like the The same role. Yeah. The girl in trouble, for lack of a better term. And he was like, what if she was the other? Although she still, in some ways, became the girl in trouble.
1: She's the girl in trouble. Yeah. I, I often say that the difference between a straight movie goer and a queer movie gover, goer is that the straight people love it when the good guys win. Gay guys love it when the bad girls win. And I love that we've got a femme fatale in here that's fascinating in Anya Taylor-Joy's Sandy and also a beautiful bitch in Ellie's horrible roommate, Jocasta. Yes.
3: Are you Eloise? Yeah. Yeah, you, you look like an Eloise. Well, Ellie. I'm um, Jocasta. Did they suppose their name wrong or something? I oh, know, I've just decided to drop it because I feel like it's way more singular to be known by just your Christian name. You know, like, so famous in your work that you can actually just go by Kylie. Minogue. Jenna. You're a bad example, but how many Jocasters do you know? None. Exactly babes
1: like a real-time beautiful racist <laughs> too. wonderful people well, wonderful uh, wicked women in this and speaking of gay
2: audiences Patrick can I tell you I knew I was seeing this with the right audience when Dame Diana Rigg opened the door and everyone clapped
0: you know Said <laughs> ah, <I'm done. laughs> <laughs> kitchenette bathroom you won't have to worry about it until the summer but then you'll have to keep the plugs in because all the smells rise up
4: how long have you lived here?
0: oh a long while I used to work here, cleaning and such. Back when round here was a bad spot, I bought it for buttons off the old owner. Must be worth a lot now. Oh, I could never sell it. Too many memories.
1: See, I didn't even realize that was her. I love Diana Why We we love her on this show. We worship her on this show. I didn't. I didn't make the connection. So when I saw her name come up at the end, I'm like, that is perfect. That is perfect. That makes this movie so much better no it's uh, what a what a movie to go out on truly i mean and what's interesting well i don't
2: want to dig into the spoilers yet because i know we have a conversation to have but i think that when yeah, i think we'll save them to the end and we'll give people like a five second warning to get the fuck out right but when you think of the trajectory of the movie her selection in that role was really great
1: agreed okay we mentioned the other bitch jocasta the regina george of fashion school i love to hate her from the moment she opened her mouth <laughs> yeah so where are
3: you from uh red ruth i cornwall I'm sorry? You know Cornwall in the countryside? No, no, I, I heard you, babe. I'm just, I'm sorry.
2: Well, I mean, it's such brilliant screenwriting and it's such brilliant acting because we know as an audience what our reaction is supposed to be to her.
3: What about you? Manchester originally, but I uh, moved down here on my gap year. Uh, I had an internship at an atelier in Savile Row. Oh, wow. I've just been in Regis making my own clothes. Oh, yeah, I you made that. <laughs> yeah, this is boucher before she sold out, moved
2: to Lamba, obviously. And it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of a tricky thing, you know, working with actors a lot. Actors, of course, want to communicate the character that's on the page. But in the more modern era, it's kind of difficult to explain. Uh, but the modern era of social media where people like to equate your character with you, sometimes actors become very nervous about playing someone unlikable for the reason that maybe Twitter doesn't understand that they're pretending. But this person uh, who plays Jocasta, she plays this part with such wicked abandon. You know, you know exactly who she is. Every fiber of her mean girl energy is in that role. And you're right, you love to hate her, which means she did her job.
3: So what does your dad do? Uh, I don't know him. Tell me about it. And your mom? My mother's dead. Well, I knew we'd find some common ground eventually. Yeah, I was only 15 when she died. What about you? Seven. Oh, wow, that is young. Although I guess it's maybe easier at that age.
1: The way it's written and the way she plays it, it's very much that British passive-aggressive thing that I'm coming off as a bitch to cover up. I'm really insecure. We have a competitive grief competition. Yeah. Oh, A competitive grief competition is what I just said. We had a grief contest. Over whose mom died better. No. And who was more sad?
3: We're in the dead mum's club. Oh, fuck leukemia, am I right? That's awful. Yeah, it's pretty shit. I'm not gonna lie. But I don't know, I feel like it kind of fuels my work. So mm. what happened to your mum? Uh she wasn't well mentally. She she killed herself. Sorry. shouldn't have asked it was a long time ago you're like so brave so brave yeah i had a a great uncle commit suicide hung himself oh Oh God. god so yeah i know exactly what it's like also so brave so
2: brave. Yeah. It's wild because for a while, I wondered, because it takes us a while for us to get to the apartment and kind of the, the thrust of the movie. We get some of uh, Ellie's life in London and with Jocasta in and, and school first. And you, you kind of wonder if maybe the movie was drawn out a bit, except I think those scenes are crucial upon a rewatch because you really get. The desperation of everybody in Soho, there's a desperation underlining all the characters of this film that then like makes the trajectory of the film make even more sense.
1: And we need all this stuff with her grandma, too. We need all of those scenes. We need to know that she has a history of what we think is mental illness and that she's had some sort of a breakdown before. And we need to know about her mom as well. Her mom also suffered mental illness. And that Ellie is following in her footsteps by going to London to become a fashion designer. Oh, we also need to know that Ellie sees her dead mom in the mirror isn't telling anybody. Is it mental illness? Is she psychic? Was her mother also psychic? We don't know, but we need to know that this is happening. We need to know these things, that she is extremely vulnerable. She's not just a young girl and a new talent. She's a fragile young woman.
2: When you think about it, too, because it's like the grandma's almost... You're right. It's posed as a mental illness, but it's kind of posed as a mental illness, as the the anti-Carrie in some ways, whereas Carrie's mom was not thrilled. Grandma's sort of like, okay, you see people, and that's okay. I love you anyway, but is this what you want to do, you know?
3: I know how much you want this. It was her dream, too, but... It's not what you imagine, London. Grand. You've got to look out for yourself. I know. No, I'm going to say it anyway. There are lots got of bad careful. guys. There's lots of I'll bad people. they are bad apples. I'm scrappy. I can take em. I'm just saying London can be a lot. It was too much for your mum, perhaps. She didn't have your gift. A gift? She didn't feel things. See things like you do. Huh? I worry you'll get all overwhelmed again. And it's, it's not just that I need to do this for me. I really want to. For her. And maybe it won't be so bad. Maybe up there I won't be reminded of her so much. Okay. Besides, I haven't even seen Mum in ages.
1: So, okay. So walk me through, where does the magic come in? Where where, 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 where does this sci-fi element come in? How does this solve come about? So
2: when Ellie, after meeting, uh Our Regina George of Fashion School, the aforementioned Jocasta, decides that maybe living with Jocasta is not the, you know, bells and whistles that she had hoped Fashion School would be. She decides to go and find a flat to rent on her own, which leads her to a uh, upstairs apartment in an old pre-war building, I assume, that is owned by Dame Diana Rigg. Diana Rigg lays down a very arduous set of rules, but otherwise is like, cool, you can live here. And Ellie moves in, and upon her first night, she falls asleep and suddenly dreams herself into 1960s London, where she, through a series of very De Palma-esque mirror shots, thinks that she is the reflection of Anya Taylor-Joy, this up-and-coming ingenue who arrives at a club and wants to sing and dances with our 11th doctor, Matt Smith, who is very much not the
1: doctor in this movie. (laughs) Oh, no. No. No, 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 very, very much playing against yes. type in this one, which is also fabulous. What I love too, is that the second I, Anna Taylor-Joy shows up on screen, it's like pfft, magic. I'm, I'm fascinated immediately. Who is this woman? And I also love that we don't really know. Everything that happens in the past is so in the moment, literally. Like we don't know anything that came before. We don't know what came after. So all we're getting is what's right now with this young woman. So we don't know where she came from or, or anything about her. And I think all of that's fascinating.
2: And I, I really think that Edgar Wright is very um, careful in how he parses it out, because I think that we even as the audience for the first night or two uh, are even led to believe maybe she's just having a dream. I mean, of course, as a film goer, you assume at some point it will like the truth will come out. But it it it's less tangible to begin with, although she does get a, a dream. Is she a dream? Yes, she does. <laughs> yeah, she does. But yeah, I think that it, she she really just like is bought into the fantasy. Sandy is is Anya Taylor-Joy, the girl that she's dreaming about, who wants to sing uh, Dusty Springfield songs at a very cool club where she meets Matt Smith. And he says that he can get her on stage elsewhere And that's the trajectory, I guess.
1: You'll be an old lady before you get on stage here. I can get you on stage tomorrow. (laughs) Uh. Hi, this is Patrick from the future. I don't think Michael and I made this clear in our discussion, but Matt Smith as Jack He's handsome. He's charming. He sweeps Sandy off her feet and offers to be her manager. The problem is, as we find out as the movie goes along, he does manage a lot of girls. But the thing is, it's not really show business. He's a pimp. And Sandy just wandered right into his trap. Back to the show.
2: Uh, Speaking of Dusty Springfield, can we just acknowledge that the soundtrack of this movie is amazing? It's stunning. It's
1: stunning. And Yes. okay. I'm going to bore my listeners because they've heard this a million times in different contexts. Uh, my family, oddly enough, not a musical family at all. Like my parents had no records, nothing. What I knew about music I learned from my sister, Teresa, who, whose jam was the mid sixties. And I mentioned I lost a family member to cancer in connection to dreams. That was her. So this movie, it was like, she was the DJ. It was all of her songs. And it was wow. so she was very present the whole time I was watching it. And I went to see the Beatles love in Las Vegas and cried the whole show. because. But this was a whole different feel. I, mean, I just loved all of it. Like the soundtrack is bomb. And going back to Anna Taylor, what I love about Sandy, Sandy comes into this nightclub like a goddamn tornado. This young woman is so secure in her own skin. She's frightening in her own way.
3: The bartender said I should get to know the handsome fella standing next to Silla Black.
5: You should and you are?
3: The next, to Black.
5: Oh, you know. Well, you know she started out as a coach check girl. You willing to work your way up. Of
3: course.
5: What can I get you to drink?
3: It's Sandy, and I'd love her Vesper.
1: No fear. Yeah. Fearless young woman. Knows the rules, doesn't care. Yeah, I know this is what I'm supposed to do, but I'm going to break him. And it all comes to she talked to the wrong bartender.
3: I'm not here to drink, actually. I want to speak to the owner.
5: owner's not in tonight. What do you want to speak to them about?
3: I want to be your new
5: headline act. Where have you played before? Nowhere. This starts at the Café de Paris? Me. I can take your name if you want. But maybe you should speak to Jack in the meantime. Jack? Over there? The guy standing next to Cilla Black. Brilliant, Cilla. Honestly, what a performance.
2: He manages a lot of girls. She really did. But it's it's kind of one of these where I think there are so many layers to this movie that I find um, deeply connective. Well, uh, like you said, first and foremost, I, I love music uh, because music is is a yearbook in many ways. There are many things where you hear a specific song and it takes you back to the first time that you listened to it or the person who introduced it to you. So I, I completely understand your reaction to the Beatles show that you mentioned because Uh, my my mom introduced me to the Beatles. And so that's one of those things that I associate with her. And you have the music that you associate with people. Uh, and, And Ellie is sort of like us. She is us. She is the person who grandma introduced her to music. So when she leaves the town, she brings the music with her. Little does she know that the music is her first connection to the past, which then leads her to Sandy, who, of course, is connected to music in her own way. And then you get this sort of Sorted tale through the supernatural dream sequence of... I I think of a deed that that, the lyric in Evita where she says about how the dirty city feels and looks. This is that moment where you want to be in entertainment, but you don't know what that means. You do not know what you're asking because here's the dirty city. Matt Smith and that bartender and that other guy who he pretends to fight with, that's the dirty city. And what happens when you have a dream and someone takes your dream and, and, uh, dilutes it or sullies it.
1: You work in show business. I work in show business. We know those people who came to the big city and got eaten. Yeah. And it's sad. It happens a lot more than, you know, and you can be as strong as Sandy is in this movie. You can be that kind of confident all it takes is one or two wrong steps.
2: Yeah. And I think that if once you allow that, uh, that to break you, it recovering is hard. And for some people, it never happens. And um, Sandy, Sandy, I think is, is a a, a cautionary tale where she is all, all tornado, but tornadoes
1: blow out fast. Uh Uh-huh. And they have no direction. She doesn't know. I mean, she knows what she wants, but she doesn't know how to get there. And she she puts it all in somebody else's hands. And she gave it to the wrong person.
2: Although I'm going to be honest, the show that she ends up in at the Rialto, this like very like Fosse-esque uh, cabaret number, I kind of love it. I just understand why she was not happy with
1: it. Okay, one of the things that I also love about this movie is that it's also a musical. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, music is such an important part. There are full-blown musical numbers that makes me happy. So we've got we've got full-blown musical numbers. We've got a getting ready montage, and we've got a microfiche research. Session, those That's are three amazing. of my favorite things. So I'm thrilled. But what I love about the two the reveal about the reality, like we're seeing we're seeing we're seeing the 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 musical number, which is bonkers and wonderful. And we're seeing Ellie out in the audience watching it. It doesn't project that there's only men out there, right right away. It's like you have to sit for for like, why is there only men here? And then I remembered, oh, yeah, there was that British obscenity law. You couldn't have a strip show in London. Or anywhere in the country, that would be illegal. There was no pornography, so this was as close as you could get. So she's working in porn, essentially. And I, the other thing that I love, which I learned, um, do you know Stan the Mechanic, horror host, Stan the Mechanic? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We were talking about the um, the funhouse, and he says his favorite thing was this this scene in the in the strip show. Seeing the strippers with dead eyes. He's like, I love that. I love going to clubs. It's just seeing the strippers with the dead eyes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> wow. But, you know, Sandy's that- eyes are so dead during this number. And she's got, Anna Taylor Joy's got those big, huge eyes. And to see them go dead is
2: frightening. No, I would argue her eyes are, are both dead, but also you can get the annoyance. Yeah. What I When I see that scene and the way she's like, she's doing the choreography, but her face is just like this veil of whatever. Um, we all know that person who cannot mask their emotions.
1: Uh, and I I I, I, I was, was thinking not about born that. to be in the chorus, but you are Blanche. Are. <laughs> but you are. He promised me I was going to be the solo artist, but you're not Blanche. You didn't read the fine print. Well, that's what you get for singing downtown for uh cabaret show magical moment by the way but yeah i also absolutely. love that i also love that downtown has had this resurgence in horror movies like oh <laughs> it's like this is the third one <laughs> it really has i mean and i,
2: I unless there was like a vast patula clark conspiracy going on in hollywood that i
1: didn't it was know will i yeah. want people to be afraid of me in the future <laughs> <laughs> Which I would support, which I would fully support. Say, right on Petula, I, she can do no No, more. I think that there
2: could be a whole second wave for some of these, um, you know, British songbirds of a certain era. Let's have a slasher movie with Lulu songs.
4: Come on. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, I... I haven't even got to the Rita Coolidge renaissance yet, so it's all going <laughs> to.
1: Well, at least the Dina Monsoon would be 100% behind that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, rise, the, the rising of Lulu. Yes, the, 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 the Lulu songs. The, the Lulu songs. It's I got that, You heard it here first. Yes. Well, since we didn't mention him, I would like to throw some love towards
4: John.
3: Which one?
4: Well. I heard you work here now, and I was going for a drink, so I thought, kill two birds with one stone, just because you seemed a little upset in class today. And I thought, maybe I could swing by, see how you were getting on.
0: Thanks.
3: I oh, man, what do you want to drink?
4: Oh, yeah. Three Cronenbergs, please. how <laughs> Heard you got a new place.
3: Yeah, I'm in a bed sit.
4: That's good. Right? It's
3: really
0: something else.
4: It must be great. Living on your own. It
0: must be. Why? What's up? Nothing. I'm
3: just a bit overwhelmed at the moment. London can be a lot.
4: I get it. Coming to this city can be a bit of a nightmare. Honestly, I'd be lying if I said I had the best time in North London so far.
3: Where'd
4: you move from? South London. I know what it's like to feel like you don't belong. And I'm a good listener. If you ever want to talk.
1: Yes. Thankless role. He's
2: wonderful in it, though. No, he really is. He's cute. He's, He's very endearing. There's a point in the movie... And I don't know if you felt this way, of course, like he is sold as like a truly nice guy, which I love. Like he he is sort of the kind of moral center of the film once she, the cheese has slipped off her cracker. But there is also like a point where he keeps sticking by her where I'm like, OK, she's a girl from your class. Like, I, I appreciate that you like her, but like there's sort of a point where he stays with her like a bit longer than I think any normal person would, which
1: I appreciate for the sake of the script. But, yeah, he plays this part so well. It was just nice to see um, a woman character in the kind of psychological distress that Ellie is at that point in the movie after the Halloween party where he, she tells him this absolutely ridiculous thing that's what's going on for her and he just goes,
4: okay, okay.
3: Last night I saw something in the bedroom from the past. What did you see? the there's a girl that used to live in my room, Sandy. The guy that killed her is still like there. So I'm looking for murdered women and missing persons from the 60s to try and find out her name. And if I don't, I'm going to lose my mind.
4: Maybe I already have. Be free to run a mile now. Listen. My auntie believes in all sorts of witchy. So you just tell me how I can help.
1: Well, I mean, and it's not I believe that you believe it. It's like, no, Mike, no, 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 I believe you. No gaslighting. No, no. You need to see a doctor. None of that stuff. It was just nice to see. You know what I really appreciated, too, speaking of the
2: Halloween scene, is there is sort of the inference that maybe Jocasta and the the mean girls all dressed up as characters from the craft, by the way. There's this inference that maybe they dosed their drinks, but we never get confirmation. It's sort of just left up to the audience
1: to decide if that's true. Here's the thing, which I noted that time around. This is OK. This seems like a sidebar, but it's not. It's this is a, a painting with broad strokes right now. I love this movie. One of the things I love about it, I love a filmmaker where every single visual item in every single frame is there for a reason. Yeah. They're dressed for the craft-like reason because they are the wicked witches of this right. movie. But Jocasta, she sees them at this Halloween party. She brings them cocktails. The the four members of the, the craft, their yeah. blue cocktails with eyeballs were all in martini glasses. John's was in a martini glass. Ellie's was in a highball glass. It was a rocks glass, right? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you have five identical glasses and one is different. There's something wrong with your drink, honey. Right. Well,
2: also, I think that in a way, uh, Edgar Wright is so layered. You know, we, we talk about that as a, a, a everything's deliberate. But I think this is a layered deliberate too, because when we meet Jocasta, she thinks she's better than than uh, Ellie as well, and all the girls do. There's this sort of like we're fashion and you're not, no matter what you think. Mm-hmm. So here are the not not only is that reading is dangerous, something's wrong with your drink, but here are these elegant glasses, and you get the utilitarian glass. You mm-hmm. know, and so
1: it's just mm-hmm. it's what they think of her from the top on down. Mm-hmm. And also, it's keeping in her place because we're seeing in class that Ellie is doing a hell of a lot better than everybody else. Her designs are fresh. The, the teacher loves her. Yeah, so we're gonna have to we're gonna have to put her back in her place. We're just gonna have to remember who she is. Yeah, it's how we're dare this to, I studied with what's her butt before she sold out.
2: <laughs> I know. I love I love the the scenes in the fashion class, though, because it's sort of like Ellie just keeps pinning chiffon to things. And, <laughs> and, the, and the teacher is like, Ellie, this is inspired. And I'm like, Okay, it, it's not it looks amazing. But I don't know that this is the most outrageous thing that a fashion program
1: has turned out. It's for the sake of the movie. I understand. It's for the sake of the movie. Yes. Right. Right. We don't see everybody else's designs because I have to say, what I saw Jacasta pinning to her model at the end of the movie, Mike, that is trash. That is from Dracula, not to trash Dracula, but that's a Dracula <laughs> outfit. That's, that's not. That's not fashion. Fair. No one's gonna be wearing that on the street. Who is no, that woman? Where
2: is she going? Well, that's true. I, although I think the final, um, the final outfit runway version of of the chiffon outfit. Also kind of left me like, well, this is this is a runway item. You know what it made me think of? And these are two very different movies, is at the very end of Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, when Christina Applegate does her fashion show of like the, the yes. uniforms that she designs. Yes. And you're kind of like, okay, these are cool, but I don't know that a bellhop would ever wear what you just put on the runway. It's sort of the same thing where I love Ellie's version of the 60s chiffon outfit, but they're they're very not ready to wear if you know what i mean
1: i'm thinking it's the freshman year fashion show it's brilliant for freshman year that's true and she had a hell of a freshman year let's be honest she sure did she sure did i want. i wanted to just take a moment because what was really striking me this time and again this is visual stuff which people put eh, whatever um the red and the blue throughout the movie totally argento but i just love the way that it's used like i started to notice this time whenever she's in her bedroom when she's about she's got a um there's a French restaurant right outside of her apartment with a neon sign with with red, white, and blue neon on it. So it's always flashing red, white, blue, red, red, white, blue, red, white, blue. And it becomes hypnotic. And that's kind of one of the things that start inducing these trances that go into, you know, it's the music, it's the lights, and and that's what takes her to dream world every time. Well, I started to notice like throughout the course of the movie, I'm like, okay, the white part's gone. Like, so instead of getting red, white, blue, red, white, blue, the white disappears and you're just getting red blue red blue red blue and as the movie goes on and things get more intense they start to go faster whenever we're having these scenes red blue red blue red blue and towards the final scenes it's red blue red blue red blue red blue and then we get purple filters as like red blue coming together so it's telling me something and i realized that red is the color palette of the past and blue is the color palette of the present and at the end of the movie, when the mystery is solved and Sandy's killer is revealed and Sandy's killer is defeated, there's also been a fire in this building and you know everything's going to be okay. And Ellie's being taken out of the building by the paramedics and you see that neon sign and all the lights are burnt out but the blue. So it's just the blue now. Normality has been restored. The past has been resolved. Everything's okay now. I just thought that it was fascinating. Everything is deliberate. No, absolutely.
2: And I think that it's interesting that you say her when mom wears a red sweater. She's wearing a blue one at the end. So it's all. Yeah. No, I think that it's interesting that you say that people sometimes in these podcast discussions don't like when we get too stuck on visuals. But film is a visual medium, and when you're yeah. working with someone like Edgar Wright, who of course. Looking at this movie, everything is thought out. There is a reason. Edgar Wright is also a student of film. You know, you and I have both referenced Argento in this conversation. I referenced De Palma earlier. He knew that he was referencing those people as he was making this movie and putting his own spin on it. I mean, the whole sequence where she's running in the rain out of the bar is is visually evocative of the end of Suspiria. And that's on purpose.
1: Yes. And to people that say that it's not horror, I'm like, I don't really get that. I'm like, you've got a vicious murder halfway through. We've got ghosts that are not just ghosts. They're also zombie ghosts with no faces that are stalking people. And the the end is a bloodbath.
2: Yeah. Well, I don't know what the art qualifier is when people claim something isn't horror. I think. Uh,
1: Shut up. That's why. Shut up. Because I said so.
2: (laughs) It always (laughs) takes me back to when people say Silence of the Lambs is not horror and I think well you know are people eating other people in Nancy Myers movies that I missed like I mean I wish but I'm just trying to think
1: what your litmus is you've got mail would have been a much better movie had <laughs> oh absolutely had You're Tom trying to- ate what's-her-face <laughs> or
2: the reverse are you trying to edge in on my bookstore I'll eat you that's all
1: <laughs> I need oh <laughs> That's why everybody's sleepless in Seattle, because everybody's eating everybody. Meg Ryan, that's what I'm thinking up. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: no, I think that this uh, this movie's visual elements are are great and they lend to the horror. That the, You mentioned the ghost zombies, that whole sequence with your microfiche, your microfiche, microfiche moment. Micro- <laughs> 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 when the ghosts start popping up in the library and you start realizing that they are you know reaching out to her for a reason that's terrifying i mean it's 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 the spookiness of you know having to do research which is always arduous terrifying, and then yeah. and then to be set upon
1: by the ghosts of dead johns you know and also that's when we realize that they're not confined to the dream world anymore Right. They're here in real time now. You can't get away from this shit now. You're in too deep, girl. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that the whole
2: movie, it would would the movie have happened had Ellie not moved into that room?
1: Who's to say? I think it's a catalyst of many, many, many things. It's the, it's yeah. the, the room. It's her. Yeah. It's the lights. It's the music. All these things had to come together. Exactly. For this magical trip to happen. The moment that I knew I was in love with the movie was before anything happened. It was early on when Jacosta and Elliot and all the bitchy girls go out for a night on the, for the pub crawl. Oh yeah. And Ellie gets upset about something and goes and hides in the bathroom. I'm
3: just like, she's such a co bitch. I'm getting these like born again Christian vibes off her. <laughs> Countryman. She comes to her first day at LCF wearing clothes she fucking made. Yeah, that was a bit much. Nice. Bringing her home suicide. I'm sorry, but like, who the fuck
4: does that for attention? Right? Here. She's a lot fucking weird. I'd lay bets on her slashing her wrists before Christmas. You <laughs> can't <laughs> <laughs>
1: And she's sitting on the toilet, hiding in the bathroom. And there's a pentacle drawer on the wall behind her that says satin lives. Not Satan, satin, because it's fashion school.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, again, every detail is deliberate. Actually, you know, speaking of the Irish bar, which, of course, plays a, a part in the movie throughout the person that we haven't
5: talked about yet.
1: Terrence Terrence Stamp, Stamp. the silver-haired gentleman.
5: Yes. Excuse me, love. I'm talking to you, Blondie. Sorry, I have to be somewhere. I'm not trying to pick you up, sweetheart. Don't worry. I'm not worried. You look familiar to me. Who's your mother?
3: My mother's dead.
5: I thought she might be. Most of them are. Of course, I love Terrence
2: Stamp through his many, many iterations of career. Uh, Priscilla on through... I mean, I know he acted before Priscilla, but this is where I choose to reference in the in, in for the That's sake we crossed over for our people. Yes, but I think that he here is appropriately that spooky. He's the man across the street in Home Alone. Like you want to believe that there's something wrong with him to the point where it's almost like Agatha Christie red herring. I, I think there's that mystery novel trope when they set someone up to be too suspicious. It, they, can't can't they can't possibly be yeah. the killer because it's too obvious you know but he plays the part as only Terrence Stamp could
1: play and if he just phrased things a little differently he wouldn't be so terrifying but then it wouldn't be a cool movie I mean when he's when she's he's like you look familiar to me but y'all look the same on the slab or something along those lines I'll play the clip because it's a fabulous thing
3: you know a lot of the girls around here
1: a lot of them
5: I know all of them Sandy who didn't know Sandy I knew all the girls. Like to think I looked after them. Had to keep them in order too, mind. Keep them in line. Sandy, she was special though. She didn't belong. I thought she was too good for it. But you know, at the end of the day, you all look the same on the slab.
1: What a creepy thing to say, but. Right. Well, cause okay. If, if we haven't made clear at a certain point during all of these nightmares, we see Ellie see Sandy get murdered in her bed by her John, uh, by her right. pimp, whose name, what is Matt Smith's name in this? I forgot. Jack, 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 Jack the Ripper mm-hmm. with a gigantic, right. with a gigantic knife. And so the movie shifts and that's when things start to get really dark. Like I feel like, okay, now she knows too much. And like, Oh, there's this creepy guy. I think that's Jack now. <laughs> Right. He, he killed her all these years ago. She's, she's trying to prove that. And you're right. If he had just talked to her instead of
2: sulked around, got kind of not great beer, and said cryptic things. But then it wouldn't be Terrence Stamp. That's true.
3: I know what you did.
5: I've done a lot of things, Eloise. You can have to be more specific, love.
3: I know what you did to Sandy. Do you know? Mm. Yeah, I saw her I see her I know what happened
5: Well, whatever happened to Sandy she brought it on herself
3: but No one deserves that
5: Listen I know where you live, Eloise and I don't know what you've seen or heard but I can tell you Sandy ended up exactly where she wanted to be Funny you mention her though because the first thing I did when I dragged myself back to this miserable smoke was to look up her old bones. But turns out some people don't want to be found.
1: It's also that British thing of never being direct. That's a whole that's a whole thing that people personality thing that yeah you know, I, I know enough British people that it, they will avoid being direct about anything. They're always going to be obtuse because it's ingrained in their system.
2: But he felt. Cl- he felt secure enough to play Eloise on the jukebox at the bar for her, you know, so
1: which when you listen to the lyrics, I'm like this is a really creepy song to be playing about somebody that you don't know. Exactly. I mean, people are thrown out of bars for less. I'm just saying. I got thrown out of the bar, bar for tr- playing a Tracy Lord's song just because I want to hear what she sounded like. Oh yeah. That techno album she had. <laughs> it was bad. <laughs> I can <could laughs> see why they threw me out. I feel justified being kicked out of that bar.
2: No one ever plays that track you need to put up a sign, right? It's the, uh, it's the no stairway to heaven in Wayne's world moment. You can't do that. How, how did I tr- transition from Tracy Lords to Wayne's world? It's what you get when you have me on your show <laughs> through Rip
1: Taylor. They both work together. Why not? Oh, th- is that true? You didn't see that Rip Taylor, Tracy Lord's point. It was hot. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Lots <laughs> of, of confetti. confetti.
1: <laughs> <laughs> And she got a $1.97 at the end of it. <laughs> the $1.98 beauty show, whatever the hell that show was. Okay. Okay. I think we can't really go any farther without spoiling things. So, my beautiful screamers, you have 10 seconds to escape the building and go watch Last Night in Soho before you go any further. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay. We're going to spoil them. <laughs> <laughs> i've heard people complaining too because people love to complain that's like well it was really obvious the big twist i'm like is it a twist or is it an inevitability that this is exactly how this had to turn out like i figured it out a while before i am
2: well Sure. But I mean, again, since we referenced the mystery trope of the overly suspicious person can't be the actual perpetrator, it's also if you grew up watching Columbo or Murder, She Wrote or whatever, and there's a really famous guest star in the episode, they're either going to be the victim or the killer because you're not going to have, I don't know, Joan Van Ark on and not give her something to do, you know? So basically when Dame Joan Van Ark is the killer in this movie. What a surprise. She
1: just shows up at the end.
2: That's right. Joan Van Ark, surprise killer of last night in Soho. no, when Dame Diana Rigg opens the door and lets her into the apartment, if you thought one of the most legendary actresses of British stage and screen was just gonna be the house mom in this movie, like you haven't been paying attention to mystery setup your whole life.
1: There's plenty of verbal clues throughout. Yes. As well. Um, like I said one earlier. Well, Sandy, you're already a star, but you could be an old lady before you get on stage here.
2: Yeah. Or, you know, the fact that uh, people die in every room in London. You know,
1: Alex kills Sandy and Sandy's exactly where she
2: wants to be. That's true. And so are have we have we crept around this enough? Do we get to reveal that? Yeah. That Dame Diana Rigg, Mrs. Collins, the downstairs neighbor is in fact Sandy herself, Alexandra, Living as the landlady of this building. And it was not, despite what Ellie believed in her vision, Sandy who was murdered, but in fact Sandy who is murdering Jack. Which is an Argento trick as well, because in Bird with the Crystal Plumage, they think they see the kill happen, but it's actually the reverse of that. And that's what happens here as well.
1: I died in that room a hundred times. Mm-hmm. And then I put a knife in him a hundred times. <laughs> Great
0: stuff. Drink your tea. You went to the police, didn't you? About the room upstairs, hmm? Yeah. A nice police lady came round, asking questions about you. About your well-being. Welfare check, she called it. Had me worried. You've been saying a girl died up there. Sorry. Oh, it's funny because there is some truth in it. (laughs) I hadn't thought about it until you brought it up, but a girl did die up there, I suppose. The young me that came to this big city. Sandy. I had hopes and dreams like you. I wanted to be a singer. I wanted to perform, to act. Being a whore is a bit like being an actress, I suppose. (laughs) You have to pretend you're someone else. Someone that's not you. I pretend I was somewhere else. This wasn't happening to me. Try and forget all those all those men, their faces. I blanked them out. I had to make like they were nothing. So yes, you could say Sandy died in that room. She died in that room a hundred times. And then one night, the man who put me there the man who put me to work the man who stole my dream well I put a knife in him hundred times do you know what Ellie oh I can call you Ellie can't I yeah. it felt right Ellie all those bastards who came ringing my bell creeping up my stairs they send me to hell so I send them to theirs papers call them missing persons as far as i'm concerned they were already lost so they don't know where they are i say they didn't know who they were i was doing everyone a favor i wasn't going to be used. used anymore i wasn't going to let this city break me i'm so sorry why? It's not your fault.
3: No, oh, I mean, I understand. I know what you mean,
0: to. How do you know? I didn't
3: mean to get you in trouble with the police.
0: Oh, it's all right. They think you're mad. And it's not like you're going to tell anyone else.
3: No, no, of course not. I would never... No.
0: I mean... I know you're not going to tell anyone else.
2: And then she ends up killing every John who used her over the years, bringing them back and burying them in the Because they kept bars. coming
1: back. She's like, they kept knocking on my
2: door. Well, what I love is then when you go back and rewatch the movie, there are the there are this more subtle clues. Like when she's showing the room to Ellie and she says that in the summertime the
1: drains smell.
2: You're like, mm-hmm. oh, it's because there are bodies in the building. That's
1: why. She also said, I think in the same seat, oh, I couldn't possibly sell this place. You can't sell this place not because you love it because there are bodies under the floor. That's why you can't sell the place. Yeah. Well, good for
2: her, though. I mean, not good for her. Obviously, Sandy's life is tragic. But you know how expensive real estate is in the city. So at some point, she managed to get a whole townhouse within which she could bury bodies. So that's, you know, she ended up better than some.
1: Well, you know, those Johns carry a lot of cash and they've got they've got cards. <laughs> oh, that's true. And then she did have to keep renting that room out. A lot of girls lived up there. A lot of girls. A lot of girls. Like I said, I did not realize it was Diana Ray. I did not recognize her. And I thought it was it made it much more magic when I found out when her name popped up at the end. And I'm like, oh, that explains the credit at the beginning. The for Diana.
2: Right. Did you think it was for Diana, Princess of Wales? This was our can- <laughs> this was our candle in the wind moment. Some wounds never heal, Michael Varotti. <laughs> <laughs>
1: For Diana Cordova from Soap and the First Noody Musical. <laughs> but this whole end sequence is so much fun. It's visually stunning. And this is where the special effects go crazy. She poisons Ellie when she's confessing the whole confession. She poisons her with a drink of tea, dear. Right. Casually poison her. No, I'm not going to stab you. Don't worry about it. She just got to go to sleep. I like you.
0: Oh, don't worry. I'm not going to stab you like the others. I wouldn't do that to you, no. You're gonna go to sleep, and everyone will see you. Just topped yourself because you know they all thought you were going to do that anyway. They were very concerned about you. Blessed. But the
1: whole scene where she's going, where Ellie's trying to get up the stairs and is starting a trip from the poison, and like the stairs are made of glass, and the the the. the, the all of that is so... I love that everything in this whole hallucination was made of glass. Right. The zombies are breaking through the walls, but the walls are glass. It's just so visually interesting and unexpected and magical. Like, And she's singing, You're My World, while she's stabbing at her. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. No, and I
2: read that Edgar Wright had both Diana Brigg and Anya Taylor-Joy record the final monologue so he could... In, like splice their voices in between yeah and and so you know even though we really only see Anya Taylor Joy singing in the in the hallucination as Diana Rigg is talking up the stairs the fact that we keep cutting between them and it's obviously the same person this uh, across the years it's
1: just such a great visual and so bizarre and it struck me this time too I'm like okay all of these characters are blended into one basically ellie ellie and and mrs collins and they're all the same person they've all been each other at some point and so i'm like you're fighting yourself but it's not you right and it's also a third person who's also the second person there's a lot going on it's true the only thing that ellie never committed to that
2: i think was a bummer is that both mrs collins and sandy of the past had like great bumpets going with the hair and, and Ellie never quite
1: elevated her hair enough. Just saying, first year fashion. Well, Snooki did declass the bump it. So that's it, true. That's true. Yeah, it's a big. St- it's a big commitment. It's it's you know you got to take. It's a risk. It's a risk. She wasn't ready to take that risk. She had enough. That she had enough going on in her life. Michael, that's true. And she was already harassed at fashion school enough. So. <laughs> she yeah. already made her own clothes. want wanted to make her own clothes. Add up a bumpet. Are you crazy? I also love the fact that we have several opportunities for Ellie to kill Mrs. Collins and she chooses not to. And people get mad at that. And I said, of course not. She knows that woman inside and out. She's like, I get you. Yeah. What I think
2: is ultimately great about the ending, uh, because when they make it back up to the room and the zombie ghosts of the Johns are breaking through and they plead with Ellie to call the police and like end this, they want to end, you know, Sandy's reign of terror. uh, You have this moment where you realize the ghosts have been reaching out to her because they want to be set free. And then Ellie, despite knowing the terrible thing that Sandy has done, because she witnessed Sandy's whole trajectory, knows that Sandy did all of this because her life was made terrible by these men. And she was used and abused and drugged through the mud by these men. So it's sort of, even though Sandy is the villain, she's the victim and ellie's uh ellie's refusal to help the ghosts and just walk away and let sandy and the house burn down is is really i think the only way it could have ended honestly
0: i didn't want any of this i know i saw they deserved it i know i'm not going to prison been in a prison all my
4: life.
3: Please, you don't have to do this, Sandy. You can live. Please live. You have to let
5: go. <laughs>
4: Leave no! You can't save me. Save yourself. Save the boy. Go.
1: One of the things that we neglected to mention is that the the, the script was co-written by uh, Christy Wilson, Karen, karens Karen. I'll fix that in post because I can't read my handwriting. That's it. And I think a woman's touch was really necessary in this, and I feel like, like I've noticed. You know, we're getting more and more women, uh, female horror directors yes. recently. And I've noticed a lot of the times they find ways to come to a conclusion of their horror movie to have your final battle, but it's not a bloodbath. We go a different route. I'm thinking of that uh, movie Umma with Sandra O, oh, right, which had this emotional final battle at the end. And I thought that really resonated. People didn't like that. That was a dumb ending. I said, no, that's really interesting. Of course, that's how a woman might want to resolve the situation first. And if it can be resolved. And we go that route here. too. we didn't go for the violence. We get taste of it. She got the knife to her throat and she actually cuts her own throat a little bit, but she doesn't let her do it enough. No, no, no. I want to still save you. When she does say, I know what you've been through. I felt every bit of it, too, because I'm you. Yeah, it's it's
2: really well realized. You're my world. (laughs) And what I did read is that initially Edgar Wright's plan was to have all the flashbacks be without dialogue. They would just be dream sequences. And uh, this other screenwriter who you mentioned, she said, no, we need to hear Sandy to fall in love with Sandy because she understood how crucial it was for us as an audience to know that Sandy was a fully realized three-dimensional person. Maybe this is the thing that makes some horror fans struggle because... Yes, we have like nuanced characters like Sidney Prescott or whatever, but when you look at the trajectory of a lot of horror movies, there are a lot of characters who are presented in the way that they're the fodder to get us through to the next scene, et cetera, et cetera. And this movie refuses to do that it says yes this person is the victim but also the villain and here are the circumstances and the horror of life is not two-dimensional the horror of life is messy and sticky and nuanced and maybe the things the horrible things that we do are justified but they're still horrible xyz and i don't know that maybe sometimes if you are wanting to go see house on haunted hill and instead instead get last night in
1: soho you want to grapple with the morality of it all. This is what happens when I don't interrupt. I forget what I was going to say, but (laughs) (laughs) But you're so interesting. Oh, what it is I enjoy too, is that like we, we get to know, so like we get to know Sandy, but like I said, we don't know anything about her really. And I think that's fun. I think that's fun. Cause I'm like, for someone to come in this balls to a couple, like, who are you? Who are you? So I have my little picture painted. I'm like, you're rich. Look at your outfit. Look at that necklace. you got money. But then I don't think that she is. Right. Because like you said, we're both in show business.
2: We know these these folks who when they you hit the ground running and you hit the ground running hot and you want people to think that you present this certain ideal or look. Because when Jack goes to pick her up at that apartment, she's not rich, Her clothes are rich. I think that, like, you know, she knows what she needs to look like going out for a night in Soho to catch the attention of men who she hopes will advance her career. And, like you said, unfortunately, she just met the wrong man. Because I think that if Sandy were. A a woman of means, no matter how badly she wanted it, I don't know that she would have ended up at that show at the Rialto either. I think that I think the clues are there. Like she she is desperate to be part of this, but the desperation comes not just from show business, although that's a great motivator for people. I I
1: think not not all people, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. But I just love that you get you don't get any clues about her background. Of course, people complain about wait, and then fuck off. But I just love that she comes in this realized. Oh yeah, but we don't. How need do it. you? How do you? How do you just walk into a club like that? Like again, visually stunning. This whole scene where she just enters, we're coming down the staircase with Cilla Black singing, and it's just fabulous because this club is lush. It's red, of course, because it's red, right? <laughs> because red in this movie. And the room stops, and she doesn't like no hesitation. Like she's been there a thousand times. She's home the second she walks in, and uh, just to see a, a female character with that kind of confidence, I think is great. And even at her worst when things really start to dribble away, that's still there. Like the, uh, the scenes, the scenes with her dealing with Johns, I think yeah. she's having the same conversation over and over again. The fact that she's well aware what she's doing and she's laughing at i something like she's, she, she knows exactly that what trap she's in. Well, and I think that the argument that we don't know enough about, by, by the right, way, it, Michael, by the way, Michael Varadi, that's a lovely name.
5: That's lovely. That's a lovely
1: name. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> well done. Uh, no, no, uh, she she, she, I wanted to see her be like, my name is dog
2: shit. Oh, that's a lovely, that's a lovely name. name. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, but I think it's interesting that people would argue that we don't know enough about her because she's literally presented to us as a dream girl. You know, you're
1: not supposed to know a lot about the dream girl. No, and if we knew stuff about her, then Ellie would be able to find out about who she was. And that's that would ruin the mystery. I love that she's this big
2: cypher. Right. Oh yeah, can you imagine if like we found out so much about her at the beginning that she's like, "Oh, it's the lady downstairs." Like you know, the whole point was like that would that would very much shorten the movie quite
1: quickly. I do have to say with my first time through in the theater, I thought it was a little long. Yes. Like when we hit big violence scene uh, that we mentioned before, this Halloween party that, that they go to, which I also think is fat another visual thing that's great. After she takes the 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 drink, it's she's you seeing uh, this the the sides of things are starting to get wobbly, and time is starting to do the weird thing. The the people partying behind her, they all have like some variation of their eyes blacked out, and it looks like some kind of deos, de los muertos thing. Right. Which is then contrasted when the zombies show up, the ghost zombies. So you're flashing back and forth between the two. I'm like, this girl's surrounded by dead people. I love this. This is so smart. This is when she sees, when they go home to make out, she sees the murder of uh, what we think is the murder of Sandy. But I'm thinking, we're wrapping up to the finale. And then we had the library research scene. I'm like, this, I love my microfiche, but I feel like this should have happened half an hour ago. And my body kind of went, uh. I haven't felt that on on subsequent viewings. I just get lost in the world, which is, doesn't happen for me in movies a lot because my brain is always going, mem, 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 mem. that doesn't work, that doesn't work. But for me to actually get sucked into a movie and lost in it, magic. No, and I think that's the gift. And I think that we because
2: you and I and and our colleagues, we talk about movies all the time. And I think that sometimes you hit that point where you forget the wonder that made you want to talk about movies all the time. And it gets really easy to nitpick or get jaded. And there are certainly plenty of movies that are too long. But this is one of those where, yeah, I think that you almost have to resist your natural critical urge watching this because I felt that too. I am hundred percent with you. There was the first point where I'm like, this is a two hour horror movie. Not that that's a problem. There are plenty of two hour horror movies, but it's all in the, it's all in the pacing. And at first I kind of like resisted as well. But then upon, you know, this revisit, I was like,
1: Oh, it all
2: works. It's all there for a reason.
1: It all needs to be there. Yeah. And it's a pleasure that it's there. I'm not, I mean, now I don't get bored. It's like, just let it happen. Just, you got, you got nowhere to be for two hours. Right. Stay comfy. And that's it. I think that we
2: as filmgoers are are missing those moments, you know, these days where just check into the fantasy. Now, this is a dark fantasy, of course, but it takes you where
1: it needs to go by the end. Right in the gutter. (laughs) Not back to Cornwall, though. No, not Back to Cornwall. No, no, no. No, I love this little movie. I think it's fabulous. Um, I think we might have done Last Night in Soho. I think we did. And uh, I'm I'm better for it. Aren't we all? The world is better for it. So, Michael, before you go, please tell people where they can find you, what you're working on. And by the way, you I mentioned Dracula. You're big involved with them, am I not?
2: Yes, I have uh, written and directed for uh, multiple seasons of Dragula. Now, usually I am involved as a uh, the, the director and sometimes writer of the intro vignettes, the horror vignettes that open the episodes. But I have also appeared on the show as a guest judge and uh, as the director of the acting challenges that the con- competitors do. Uh, and I also... Um, pop up in a variety of different ways. If you watch, you'll see me creeping around doing. There she is. <laughs> doing stuff. I see her. <laughs> and it's fun. You know, I I have known the Boulets for a long time. Uh, for folks who do know, a lot of my work in the world of horror and queer horror intersects with drag. Uh, a lot of my colleagues and collaborators are, are horror drag queens. I've known and been friends with Peach's Christ for probably more years than both of us will ever admit. Um, and we write shows together. We have written movies together. Uh, we host a podcast together. I met the boules through Peaches. Uh, and it's it's a weird little aquanetted bloody world that we Aww. come from. <laughs> love that. Love that. And is your podcast with Peaches still happening? Or Yes, we are uh, currently on hiatus between seasons, but we have begun recording for season three. So it should be within the next couple weeks, you'll start seeing... Uh, more of us causing trouble in the the cult film space. Yeah, we host a show called Midnight Mass where we explore cults movies and cult fandom. Uh, we've had a number of really awesome guests on to talk about an array of, of midnight films. And uh, to answer your question, you can find me on Twitter at Michael Varati. It's also uh, my handle on Instagram Midnight Mass is available wherever podcasts are found. We're on Twitter at Midnight Mass Pod. Like I said, I'm in the middle of directing a feature right now that's called There's a Zombie Outside. It's very much a queer horror movie and should be done by the end of the year. So just keep your eyes
1: and ears open for that. Well, I will definitely do that. I just want to let the know, let the listeners know out there that this entire time, Michael Veriz talking about queer this and queer that. And right now I'm just watching him sit in his closet.
2: <laughs> yes, it's true. I traveled across the country for a dear he gets friend's wedding. to his wedding. parents'
1: house and he immediately goes back in the closet. How yes. about that? And I'm staying at my parents'
2: house and the only place where you can't hear their brand new puppy clicking around is in the co- closet in their guest room. And so, uh, you know, you get sometimes you got to do what you got to do.
1: It's all part of the mystique. It's the magic and the mystique of Michael Brody. All right, Michael, thank you so much for joining me. Have a fabulous rest of the day. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay fabulous. Well,
2: thank you so much for having me. Like I said, I have long looked forward to talking with you, and it was a joy being on the podcast. You have, you know, provided the groundwork for so many of us with Scream Queens, and uh, I think that it's just truly what you do is 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 so important and so special. And I was very thrilled to get this call. So thank you, Patrick. Yeah,
1: you're very welcome. And by the way, tell Peaches I said hey, because without Peaches, there would have been no Scream Queens. Uh, Well, I'm talking to her in an hour, so I'll let her know. Okay. Oh, so that was who I was going to make you late for. Okay, great. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs)
4: All
1: right. Thank you again, Michael. Have a good one.
0: it's zombie girl tj and i saw you posted that you're about to start your 13th season which i think is fabulous and i just want to say i'm glad you're back for another season keep up the good work keep bringing us that quality quality horror and gayness because i love both that sounded weird oh well you know me i'm just weird i make it weird love you bye
1: And that's just the way we love you, TJ. What gay and weird on this podcast? Yeah, you're home. Yeah, this is the place to go when you're scary, gay, and weird. Thank you for leaving a voicemail, TJ. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. If you want to be cool like TJ and leave me a voicemail, you can do that by going to www.screamqueens.com. That's the main webpage. It's a little tab on the right-hand side. Click that tab. Leave me a message. It comes right to me. Or send me on Facebook Messenger, whatever you want. Send me something. I want to hear from you because spooky season is coming up. I want to know what you're doing. I want to know what you're seeing. I want to know about the haunted houses in your area. I also want to know what you thought about last night in Soho. What What are your thoughts? And also, I want to say thank you to my very special guest, Michael Varadi. What a treat he was. Right? Of course, right. And hey, in our discussion, Michael's movie, Tales of Poe, is now screening for free on Tubi TV, and that's the one that's obviously Tales of Edgar Allan Poe, but they're modernized, the genders are flipped, they're all queered up, and somehow they got every 80s horror scream queen to be involved in this movie. It's got Amy Steele, Adrian King, Caroline Williams from Texas Chainsaw, Leslie Donaldson from Happy Birthday to Me, Desiree Gold from Sleepaway Camp, and of course, Alan Ro Kelly, uh, who it on the show last year when we talked about Picture Mommy Dead, Randy Jones from The Village People, and of course, it also stars Michael Verratti himself, so go check that out on Tubi. It's a treat of movie. It's not what you're expecting. You think you know Poe? You better think again, baby. Ow! So my final thoughts on Last Night in Soho. As we said in our discussion, there's a lot going on in this movie. And honestly, Michael and I barely even scratched the surface of the many, many layers and the many, many things that are happening in this gem of a film. But the thing that I can't believe I forgot to bring up is one of the main focuses of the film, one that Edgar Wright said was the whole point of him writing this, is about the danger of nostalgia, When you romanticize a certain time period or a certain place or a certain person even that you're putting on rose-colored glasses and you're not seeing things as they really were or are, depending. I mean, yeah, Soho was a cool place in the mid-60s. The music was great and the fashion was groovy and it was a hip habit in town. But as they say repeatedly throughout the movie, London is a lot and it's filled with bad men. Those two lines keep getting repeated over and over. It is filled with bad men. And when you actively choose not to see the dark side of time periods or places or people, you're going to wind up in a lot of trouble. And that's when ugly reality is going to creep up and grab you right by the throat and drag you down an alley. It's like Michael said, reality is not... Pretty, it's messy and it's gross and it's weird. The only way I can really draw a parallel to this personally for myself is the 70s. I hear a lot of people saying, Oh my God, the 70s must have been so cool. It's usually people who did not live through the 70s and it was so groovy and the fashions were cool and disco and blah, blah, blah. Yes, that was all there, but that was a really small part of it. What I remember about the 70s is this uncomfortable clothes that didn't breathe. Everything was made out of shitty synthetic fabrics that were just awful to wear it was you were always sweaty but on the inside of your clothes it didn't go through it was awful terrible time and also other things that i remember serial killers every day in the news The i mean the big ones son of sam hillside strangler torso killer green river killer i, I could go on and on and on and these were the, the atlanta child murders It was scary. Like, I hear people say, oh, my God, that must have been so cool. No, it wasn't. It was scary. And on top of it all, everything manufactured in the 1970s was out to kill you. Like, everything was poison. The soda was poisoned. The candy was poisoned. The toys were poisoned. Like, literally, the toys were designed to kill us. Jarts, kabangers, all that shit. It was dangerous and scary and you just, everything was brown and everything stank of cigarettes. Even if you didn't smoke, you smelled like cigarettes. I'm five years old and I smell like cigarettes. Okay, you didn't have to smoke because you go to somebody's house and they smoked, you sat on the furniture and just, like, all of a sudden this cloud of smoke would come up over you. Whatever, you just, everything stunk. The yeah, it was the disco era, but nobody dressed like that outside of the disco. It must have been so great to go to Studio 54. Guess what? You probably wouldn't have gotten in nobody got in if you're listening to a podcast you're not cool enough to have gotten into studio 54 oh and honey you got a problem with the gas prices now clearly you weren't alive then because oh kids back then it was rationed oh yeah you can only get gas on certain days depending on the last number of your license plate there are odd days and even days and even then you'd go and sit in the line for hours hours just to get an overpriced gallon of gasoline and hoping that will get you through the next day, couple of days because it costs like a billion dollars and you wasted a whole day trying to gas up your fucking car. Boo-hoo, gas is $4 again. Fuck you. Did it take you less than 30 seconds to get your gas? Then you ain't got nothing to complain about. I could have read a whole book waiting on a gas line back then. I could have written a whole book waiting in a gas line back then. And so, take it from somebody who grew up in a house with crushed velvet furniture with plastic on top and who played with toys with lead in them and a candy with red dye number five the 70s sucked the music was great some of the fashions were cool but for the most earth earth tones and fucking olive green no just no so if my candy and my toys weren't going to give me cancer and poison me then uh great a serial killer is looking around the next corner, waiting to abduct me in his van fuck this oh and then jaws there was jaws People don't understand the fear of Jaws. That movie scared people out of the water for years. Like literally, I grew up in a beach town. The beaches would be crowded, there'd be nobody in the water. For years. As any kid from the 70s could tell you that Jaws could be anywhere. He could be in the pool, he could be in the bathtub, he could be in the toilet, he could be in your drink of water, he could be anywhere. I don't know how any of us survived any of it. When you put on those nostalgia glasses, you are cherry picking the best parts of an era or a place or a person and you just neglect everything else. And that, kids, is how you don't make it to the final reel of your movie. That's how you wind up dead in rayon pants with lead poisoning and eaten by Jaws. Before I wrap things up for another episode, I just want to let you know, some of you might have noticed that older episodes of Scream Queens have been slowly disappearing from your feed. No, it's not a ghost that's eating them. There's nothing wrong with your pod player, none of that stuff. I have been slowly removing them all summer. Everything before September 2018 is going to be taken off the public feed and eventually get put on a private feed for my Patreon subscribers. There will be other ways for you to access them in the future, but that's still a few steps down the line for me. This process is taking a very long time. There's no way on Captivate FM for me to batch edit all these things and just like click everything I want gone. No, I have to do it one at a time. And we're talking about hundreds of episodes. We're talking eight years of shows. So it's been a slow process. So if you have favorite older episodes, you better listen to them now or else you would have to join Patreon. What's Patreon, Patrick? Well, Patreon is a subscriber service for people who really love the show and want to help support the show. And in return, you get access to our two premium podcasts that are out there right now. Uh, One is called Damn You, Uncle Lewis, where we talk about Friday the 13th, the TV series. And the other one is it came from the 70s, which is where I talk about made-for-TV horror movies from the 1970s. We always have special guests and it's always a great time. The Scream Queens episodes that I've removed from the feed will not be popping up on Patreon anytime soon. That's Like I said, this is a long, arduous process because I got to take them down one by one and then I got to put them up someplace else one by one. But they'll be ha- happening there soon. So if you want access to all those things, please consider becoming a patron. Head on over to patreon.com slash Scream Queens and join the ranks of the super cool super screamers. If this is your first time listening to Scream Queens, hi, welcome. I hope you had a good time. And if you did, please follow the show, subscribe, whatever it is that your podcaster asks you to do. And you'll always find out when there's a brand new episode. Find me on Facebook, like me there. I'm on Twitter and I'm on Instagram as well. It's Scream Queens, the Scream Queens podcast, one or the other. It's always Queens with a Z, like Liza. Next time. Hey, remember back in June, I was doing that three-part series on the dark side of the rainbow and then I broke my foot and my ribs and I couldn't finish? We're finally finishing. Hey, I said it was going to be a three-part episode. I didn't say it was going to be three parts in a row. The final leg of the journey is to the darkest part of the rainbow yet. We're talking about the 2006 film Grim Love with the fabulous Maya Murphy. Anyway, Grim Love. It's good stuff. It's great stuff. It's oddly beautiful stuff, but it is strong stuff for those of you brave enough to play along at home. But how do I play along at home, Patrick? Well, that's easy. You can watch the movie for free on Tubi.tv. Anyway, until next time, my beautiful, beautiful screamers, continue to make the world a more fabulously creepy place and never, ever, ever forget the Scream Queen's golden rule. Fight or flight, survive the night, make it to the final reel. Stay safe, stay healthy, and most importantly, stay fabulous. (laughs) music for tonight's show, and as otherwise specified, has been written by Sam Haynes. You can find all of his music at www.bandcamp.com. Bitches!
5: <laughs> Ew.